Hi coaches, this is Whitney with Get the Pancake, a podcast for volleyball coaches. Today I have a special treat for you. A lot of you have been requesting longer podcast episodes, and so today I thought I would surprise you with a longer episode and combine it with a special reading of a chapter from my book, which is Coaching Volleyball, A Survival Guide for Your First Season. Now, this book just recently came out in a paperback edition, and I'm super excited that so many of you have already gone on to Amazon to get your copy. I wrote this book in 2016, and it has been available as an ebook. I know a lot of you were really waiting and holding out for that paperback copy. I'm the same way. I like to have my book in front of me instead of on a screen, but for whatever reason, it was a challenge to get that out when I wanted it, but it is finally ready. So after I read this chapter to you, if you are interested in getting the full version, it is available again on amazon.com. The chapter that I'm going to be reading today is chapter four, the beginning of the season. Now you may be thinking the beginning of the season, that sounds like it should be chapter one. But as you read this book, you'll realize that there's a lot more to coaching than just stepping onto the court and running practice and playing games. Again, this is going to be a pretty long podcast. I'm really excited to share this chapter with you. I hope it gives you some good direction and gets you excited for your next season of volleyball, whether that's your second, sixth, or even first season. I hope you get pretty pumped. So let's go ahead and jump into the chapter. Chapter four, beginning of the season. From Coaching Volleyball, a survival guide for your first season, written by Whitney Bartuk. You may be thinking, finally, we get to practice. The answer is yes and no. Of course, you get to practice once the season starts, but there are still a few administrative tasks which need to be completed. There's more to this coaching stuff than just running practice and playing games. Although you will undoubtedly be ready to jump right in, there are a few more tasks you need to take care of before you begin to actually start coaching. The beginning of the season has a lot of formalities which need to take place, including meeting with the families of your team and setting expectations, establishing team rules, ordering uniforms, and more. On the bright side, you actually get to start practice, which is why you were drawn to coaching in the first place, right? Meeting the parents. Meeting the parents can be an intimidating situation. Unless you are from a small town where everyone knows everyone, you'll be going into this meeting with no idea what personalities you'll encounter. From the get-go, everyone will be extremely friendly. Most of them will be just as excited as you are about the upcoming season and will be eager to hear your plans for the team. However, this doesn't mean you can go into the meeting totally relaxed and without preparation. Families will have questions for you, and the ones who will ask you questions are the ones who are not concerned with sugarcoating their inquiries. This is why you try to address many of these topics in a welcome speech slash presentation so you give off the vibe of being prepared and that you are fully capable of leading their daughters. Here are some examples of the questions you might be asked at your first meeting of the year. How long have you been coaching? Did you play? How much traveling are we going to do? How do you decide playing time? What uniforms are we getting? Can you give my daughter a ride? When are practices going to be? How do you think we'll do this year? Try to address as many of these questions as you can in your introduction to the team. The fewer questions there are, the quicker everyone will get out of the meeting, which busy parents appreciate. 
Additionally, if you answer some of these questions up front, like how long have you been coaching, it will feel less like you're hiding things and you will seem much more confident and trustworthy. Do your research, have your ducks in a row, and lay it all out on the table. A sample introduction for a first-year coach could sound like this. Hello everyone, my name is Whitney Bartuk and this is my first year coaching volleyball. Although I'm new to coaching, I started playing volleyball when I was in sixth grade and have been playing ever since. While in high school, I worked at every summer camp and even led camp my senior year. What I loved about coaching during camp was seeing the girls develop their skills and watching their enthusiasm for the game grow. Although it's my first year coaching, I know that this program has been very successful in the past. I plan to build on those successes with an aggressive playing style, which still develops the entire team. You should then go over team rules, which is detailed in subsequent sections, established travel plans, the possibility for any additional travel, uniform ordering if not already in place, practice schedules, and team policies. Once your presentation is done, open the floor for questions. You should have addressed most of the topics which apply to everyone, so you may get individual questions at this point. Note that you can discuss individual questions afterwards so the group can be dismissed. If you do not already have it, have sheets which families can complete and pass around at the meeting for contact information. Follow the meeting up with an email summarizing your points and reiterating any questions which you answered during the meeting. One final note, although I often refer to family members as parents throughout these pages, please be aware that sometimes you may be communicating with aunts, uncles, grandparents, legal guardians, step-parents, cousins, the list goes on and on. I recommend being inclusive in your speech because not everyone will have a mom and dad as their primary support system. I prefer to use the term family as often as possible since this has always captured everyone who is a legal guardian for my girls. So despite my use of the term parents on occasion, please note the family structure for your players before you say anything which excludes someone who cares for one of your girls. More paperwork. I know, I know, you thought you were done with paperwork, but I have good news for you. This is fun paperwork, really. Before the season started, you had to get all of your employment forms and certifications done. Now that you have your team chosen, there are a few more paperwork tasks which you should do. This is a time when you can be creative, so embrace the fun that comes with coaching. If you're not the creative type, however, you can choose to find some of these items online and save yourself the time. Regardless of your coaching philosophy, you'll need to be clear about at least one topic during the season, team rules. While discipline is discussed a little later on, discipline should only happen after team rules are broken. After reading the discipline section, create a list of your team rules and print out enough to give to each player and also to distribute to families at your first meeting together. This way, everyone knows what is expected of them and is not caught off guard when you take disciplinary action. If you have different levels or kinds of discipline depending on the rule which is broken, list that out as well. Not only will this help deter rule breaking, but it will also help you stay consistent. Once you've created your team rules, you need to hand them out to your players. While you could just give the paper to each girl and hope she at least keeps it somewhere in her gym bag, I prefer to hand out team rules in a folder which I customize for each player. This could be as simple as writing their name and number in the top right hand corner. You could get a little more crafty if that's what you're into and add stickers, quotes, drawings, etc. on their folder. It might also be fun to have a folder decorating station at the beginning of your meeting to keep the players entertained while you talk to the families. Younger players will probably appreciate this more, but the right group of high schoolers might enjoy it just as much. 
So why hand out folders when all you're doing is handing out team rules? A folder is generally more sturdy than the paper, which will likely end up crumpled at the bottom of their bag next to a rogue sock, which you're not even sure is theirs. <laughs> but now you have a safe place for other papers to go if needed. Say you're traveling for a tournament and want to hand out the information at practice. It will be safe in the folder. Maybe you want to create a habit of writing down team and personal goals before each match. That can go in the folder too. You're helping yourself in the long run by giving them a safe place to store anything you think is important enough to print out and give to them. Later on in this book, we'll look at keeping stats for your team. In that chapter, I will give you tons of reasons to implement stat tracking in the beginning of your season, but I want to give you a tool now which will help you use stats for each individual on your team, not just at the broad level. If you search hard enough online, you can download a personal stat tracker for your players. This encourages one-on-one -on -one discussions with your players if you have the time, but can also be an easy way to communicate about their individual performance and growth without having to use practice time to have these meetings. If you'd prefer to create your own personal stat tracker, consider including the following spaces to communicate growth over the season. Serving percentage, passing percentage, setting percentage, attacking percentage, blocks, kills, aces, assists, digs, and notes. To demonstrate growth, I like to show the team an average percentage, not including the most recent match or tournament. Then I have a column with the same stats, but for only the most recent match or tournament. This will show the players how their most recent performance stacks up against their previous performance. During my second year of coaching, I also included the team percentages so they could see where they were in relation to everyone else on the team. I decided to take the stat off of the form itself and instead share these numbers verbally. Team stats are a good measure, which you should definitely track, but you're adding insult to injury when someone realizes they're dragging down the team passing percentage every tournament. They'll know when you announce team stats, there's no reason to include it on their personal stat tracker. If you're going to have meetings after every competition to discuss individual progress, you can give players one sheet which they can use all year to track their stats. If you prefer to hand out stats and only have meetings when necessary, I recommend just handing out a new sheet after every match or tournament. One word of caution on personal stat trackers. Your players can take these very literally and the self-confidence of younger players especially may suffer. Communicate with your team that they are a learning tool and cannot capture everything which a player brings to the team. Enthusiasm and teamwork are just as important, but those are hard to measure. Add positive comments in the notes section to discuss ways in which a player contributed that is not made obvious by the stats. Building trust and culture. Remember in the very beginning when I said that some parts of this book will have a greater impact on your season than others? Well, this is one of those areas, and it is major. Right behind your coaching philosophy is your ability to build a positive and productive team culture. And while coaching philosophy and culture are of the utmost importance, your influence will not extend as far as you hope without first building trust. To start, let's talk about trust. We all know in our gut when we trust someone or not, but what behaviors actually generate trust? Think back to your former coaches. Were you ever told, you're going to get a lot of playing time today, only to sit the bench like always? Or have you ever gone back to serve only to see your coach panic and call for a substitution, even though they weren't sure who they were going to put in? Or have you ever asked your coach about playing a new position or trying a new play, been told yes, and then never get the opportunity? These experiences likely deteriorated your trust in your coach and impacted your commitment to the team and their goals. While it occasionally happens, 
Breaking promises to your players or not being prepared for certain situations on a regular basis is one of the quickest ways to fail as a leader of your team. So how do you build and maintain trust? For starters, know your coaching philosophy. If you haven't taken the time yet, go back to chapter one and do this now. This will show you your true coaching personality. When you understand that, you can create policies around your values, which you are more likely to follow even during high intensity and high stress situations. How do you do that? It's mostly self-monitoring. Want to brighten someone's day by telling them that they're going to get more playing time? Just don't. Even if your intention is to get them in, don't tell them this a few hours before the match when you're still uncertain of all the playing conditions. Do they need a heads up? Yes, but only when you know for sure that they're going in, not when you think it would be nice if you could get them more playing time. Or if they want to try a new position and you think the time is right, let them know before a match so they can warm up in that position. Don't think you'll get them in? Need them in their regular position? Just tell them that. Delivering bad or unwanted news is hard, but if your players know that you're being honest with them, the trust will build. Some pointers. Don't overpromise. If the answer is no, say no. Explain decisions if the situation calls for an explanation. Fight the urge to explain decisions otherwise. Say what you mean. Follow through with promises. If you fail to meet a promise, sincerely apologize. Behind only your coaching philosophy and trust, building team culture is one of the foundations of the season which you need to make a priority. Your culture is essentially a mixture of the most dominant personalities on your team and your values. In coaching volleyball, and girls especially, it's important to maintain a positive and supportive culture. This doesn't mean you have to start off each practice with a group hug or give constant praise, but the environment should encourage growth. This can work for all coaching philosophies, whether you see yourself as more of a drill sergeant or a cheerleader. Think about the behaviors and rituals you want to build into your culture. I'll share a few of my favorite experiences as a coach to get you started. Start by focusing on the values you want to see in your players and the behaviors which would demonstrate those values. Then come up with a few reinforcements you'd like to use for each behavior. Here are some of my personal favorites. Value, aggression, behaviors wanted, hitting down balls and diving. Reinforcement, verbal praise, celebrate passes, give stickers. Value, bench involvement, behaviors wanted. Bench cheering, ready to go in at all times, suggesting plays during matches. Reinforcement, keeping stats, bench cheers, standing up. Value, strategic play. Behaviors wanted, play calling, captain-led huddles. Reinforcements, ask team to call a play and run it, celebrate tips in open areas. By understanding what you want out of your players, you are able to better communicate your expectations to them. Designing reinforcements ahead of time leaves only one task remaining, implementation. Now try and come up with your own list. Bounce back and forth between your values and behaviors wanted, then think of how you'll reinforce them. Consistency is key here. Make sure the reinforcements are something you can keep up with. Otherwise, the behaviors may not be consistent either. You might find that throughout the season, you will add new behaviors to your wish list, and you'll probably change some of your reinforcements if they aren't working and add new ones. Only change something if it absolutely does not work or if you find that you cannot keep up with it. For example, I place a high value on aggressiveness. During one of my years coaching club, I took Valentine's Day cards to my girls at a tournament on February 14th. Since I only had 10 girls, I brought along the extras with the intention of giving more out to siblings who were at the tournament. 
I had a ton of leftover stickers from the packet, and halfway through the tournament, one of my players pancaked a ball, which I absolutely love because it shows so much aggression and the implementation of skills we were working on in practice. The other team called a timeout, and as my team came rushing in, excited by the play, I told that girl that she would get a heart sticker for such a great play. Everyone was excited and cheered more. And so began the ritual of giving out heart stickers for amazing plays. My setter chasing down a shanked pass 20 feet behind the service line, a back row player calling off a front row player to downball a bad set instead of letting it get passed over. These events happened often enough to keep the stickers in mind, yet were rare enough to be special, probably once or twice a tournament. My players got excited about it. I was excited about it. It was easy to maintain and it reinforced the type of play I wanted. When someone would make a great play, there would usually be one or two girls yelling, heart sticker. It was perfect. Fast forward to the following season. A few of the same girls are on my team and I'm excited to use stickers as bribery for good play yet again. I announced this to the team at our first meeting expecting the same excitement and enthusiasm which existed with my previous team. However, this group of girls was older and quite frankly, not even mildly enthused about stickers. Gotta love high schoolers. I was a little taken aback by their sideways glances and raised eyebrows, but just knew that once we started playing and they started earning their stickers, they would love it. This was never the case. Try as I might, the stickers never stuck. I tried and tried, but it eventually proved to be more of a distraction than a source of unity. Halfway through the season, I admitted defeat and ditched the stickers. If anything, that experience taught me that I cannot force traditions onto a team, especially when they develop organically from a team made up of completely different individuals. So when you are trying to create reinforcements of your preferred behaviors, just be aware that some may not work as you planned and be okay with abandoning your efforts when you're positive they won't catch on or work for your team. Try things out that worked for you when you played, but realize that your team might not be as excited as you are. Just because something doesn't catch on initially doesn't mean it won't work. I enjoy mixing up teams and warm-up partners, but telling the girls to pick a new partner literally never works. And someone is always complaining. It's horrible. I started asking my girls to line up alphabetically by their favorite color, favorite flavor of gum, favorite band, etc. Then I just separate them down the middle or count off by twos to split them up evenly. When I start this with my teams, they all look at me as if I am treating them like children. Around the second or third week, they get more excited and their answers get weirder as they become more comfortable with everyone. This reinforcement bonds them all and gives them things to talk about and works towards my value of the team getting along. It's weird how much two girls can bond over both loving turquoise. Discipline. You've already created rules and discussed them both with your players as well as their families. Everyone is on the same page. Let's say you have some pretty basic rules like no kicking the ball, no swearing, no side conversations during huddles, etc. So what happens when one of your girls, gasp, breaks one of these rules? This is a major decision you need to make before the season begins because the first time it happens, it sets a precedent. Are you going to let it slide? Will you give out warning after warning yet do nothing about it in the end? Or will you stop everything and send your players to the service line and make them run until you think you get the point across? Drop in the middle of a match and do push-ups? As former players, we probably all experienced differing disciplinary styles coming from our coaches. Maybe even differences from the same coach depending on their mood. 
The head coach may have been extremely strict, while the assistant was mainly there to encourage the girls on your team. While you don't come into your first season wondering what sort of punishment your team will serve for various offenses, it is something you need to decide on. Make sure your other coaches are on the same page. Not sure where to start? Think about this. The whole point of discipline is to make your girls stop some sort of behavior, usually one they know they shouldn't do but decide to engage in anyway. The best punishment is one that they do not want and will therefore try to avoid. Some rules, when broken, are more detrimental to the team than others. Kick a ball out of the way when peppering? Not good, but likely just a reflex. Give them a warning. Boot a ball across the gym after missing a dig? She's sitting out, no questions asked. Which leads me to my next point. My personal approach to rule breaking is this. You break a rule, you sit out. Everyone knows the rules, and I don't have the time or patience to give warnings. In very rare circumstances, I'll give a warning. But because my teams know that I'm a no-nonsense coach when it comes to breaking the rules, warnings are rarely necessary. While different age groups will have different kinds of rule breaking, you need to decide on punishments which are consistent with your temperament and coaching style. I don't personally agree with punishments such as running lines, push-ups, laps, what have you. This gives those activities a negative connotation, and I want my girls to want to do those things to be in better shape. I do make one exception to running as discipline simply because a former coach of mine used it and I think it's genius. Swearing was not allowed on the team and if someone decided they were going to cuss, the entire team would get mad at them. But why? Why would a player be mad at another player for breaking a rule? Depending on the number of letters in the word of choice, that is how many laps the team had to run. But wait, it gets better. The person who swore would stand in the middle of the court or gym and count the number of laps out loud for the rest of the team. My old coach used peer pressure against us to curb our attitudes. I can practically guarantee that if you implement this rule with your team, swearing will be minimal. Whatever disciplinary policies you decide on, make sure you stay consistent in your enforcement of the rules. Just because one of the girls who has never once gotten in trouble is having a side conversation during a huddle, do not let it go. Fairness is something girls are very sensitive to, particularly when they feel it is going against them. Giving off the perception of playing favorites can be just as damaging to their trust in you as if you were actually playing favorites. Practice design. One of the topics I'm most passionate about when it comes to volleyball is practice design. Organizing skill practice and game-like drills in a way that builds up and culminates in proper skill execution is vital to running a successful practice. It is crucial that you spend more than just a few minutes coming up with practice until you are a seasoned coach, and even then, you'll probably spend more time tweaking drills to make practice just right. So let's talk about practice design. What I mean by practice design is the flow of your practices from one major category of skill work or play, games, etc. on to the next. To begin, you always need to warm up. This should take roughly 10 minutes for each practice to make sure your girls have warmed up their muscles properly. The rest of how you spend your time will vary depending on how long your practices are with younger players practicing for shorter amounts of time usually and can be broken up as follows. Dynamic stretching, stretches that make your players move. Warm-up game, a game that gets the players moving and playing volleyball but eases them into play. This should not include scrimmaging and should limit full serves or attacking right away. Games with a lot of movement are ideal. Skill demonstration and concept introduction. Explain a new skill or concept. For this example, I'll use jousting. Jousting is when two players on opposing courts go up to direct a ball that is tight to the net and could end up on either side. 
This may be too advanced for younger teams, but is a good skill to practice above 12 and under or middle school volleyball. Explanation should take no longer than five minutes unless it is very complex. Skill or concept specific drill. Now you run a drill which focuses on the new skill or concept, in our case, jousting. Ensure you are running a drill which is slowed down enough to focus on good technique, but quick enough to get a lot of touches on the ball and keep their attention. Game-like activity which incorporates skill or concept. Similar to the warm-up game, we're not getting into full-on scrimmage mode here. We just want to put the girls in a game situation which has everyone practicing jousting as if it were happening in the game. Playing a short court game where players can only tip will help the jousting situation arise more often. Old slash familiar skill demonstration. Since jousting is not typically one of the first skills you cover, you are probably a few weeks or a month into your season by the time this comes up. Your team should be familiar with their defensive positions by now so you can review defense at this time. Emphasize tip coverage as this is related to jousting. Scrimmage which incorporates both skills and or concepts. Now is the time you get to test out how well your players have grasped the new information you have given them. By running a full scrimmage, you are allowing your players to get in the habit of implementing their new skills in a way that would naturally occur in a game, not one that is forced or predictable. Cooldown. Your players have probably put a lot of effort into the last 15 to 20 minutes of practice and need to ease into their normal state. Cooldowns do not need to take very long, but should not be skipped. Also, it's very important to incorporate water breaks for the team. If someone is thirsty during a drill, you should also allow them to get water right away. Schedule these in, but make sure your players know that they can get water at any time. This is a safety issue. This does not, by any means, have to be followed religiously at every practice. However, if you are struggling to create a schedule for your practice, then this might be a great place to start. Some nights, you may also have skills which do not easily work together using this framework. For example, you need to work on serving and setting. It can be hard to make these two skills mesh well using this practice design, or you might need to spend an entire practice teaching service eve. That's fine. Just keep in mind a few pointers when designing practices. Remember to keep explaining to a minimum, unless it is a drill or concept which needs clarification and will be used multiple times throughout the season. Make sure skills practiced relate to any games played or are emphasized during scrimmages. Finally, start with foundational skills and build your way up. You can see where your players are at and might catch a few mistakes that would go unnoticed if you just jump into more advanced drills. Whew, okay, that was chapter four, the beginning of your season from Coaching Volleyball, a survival guide for your first season. I hope you all enjoyed this longer episode from Get the Pancake. If you're interested in getting yourself a copy of the full book, which is 10 chapters long and it takes you from your decision to coach all the way up to starting year two, it is available on Amazon both as an ebook and now in paperback. Just because it's on Amazon doesn't mean you can only read it on your Kindle. You can also get the Kindle app for your iPad. But if you are like me and many of the other coaches here, the paperback version is great. My intention for writing this book was A, to give you a heads up about what's coming if it's your first season, and B, to serve as a reference point for you throughout your season. I recommend you read through the whole book before you begin coaching, but then keep checking back throughout the season because things will come up that you're not expecting or you may forget about it in the beginning of the season. 
And then in the middle of the season, you realize that you need to talk about burnout or something with your players. This book is great for those of you who are coaching middle school, high school, or club volleyball for the first time. Youth volleyball coaches, you will probably get a lot of value out of the book. And if you're hoping to advance into club coaching or maybe more elite youth programs, this would be great for you just to give you a heads up as well. There aren't any drills in the book, but if you've ever been to getthepancake.com, you know that you can find a ton of volleyball drills online for free and you don't need to pay for them, especially if you're just starting out. I hope you are all enjoying your weekend. Thank you so much for listening again to the Get the Pancake podcast. I appreciate you all so much, and I'm happy that you are here and joining the Get the Pancake community. Don't forget to follow me on social. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and YouTube. Get the Pancake is most active on Instagram and Facebook. We do have a closed group for volleyball coaches. I'll include a link if you'd like to request to join that group. I'm so happy with how it's growing and how helpful everyone is in that group. So if you have any questions, there is no such thing as a stupid question for first-time coaches, and there's so many helpful people in that group. So come join us, ask your stupid questions, get them out of the way, and then in a couple of months, you'll be the one answering questions too. It will be great. One last time, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.